Well, let me pray while he gets the uh, audio, the uh, the sound uh, dialed in there. Let's pray together, guys, and ask the Lord to bless our time together today. Father, thank you so much for your grace, your mercy that we uh, can enjoy so freely in the merits of your son, Jesus. We thank you that he is our all in all, that in him we have all the righteousness, all the goodness that you require of us that we cannot give to ourselves. Lord, we thank you that our lives are hidden in Christ, hidden in God. And Lord, that he is our very righteousness, that alien righteousness, Lord, that comes through his perfect life of obedience, even unto death. Lord, we pray that you would help us now to honor you in sitting beneath your word, Lord, and in lifting up your word here in your congregation. And we pray, God, that you would give us a view of your church that is in keeping and in harmony with your word and with your will. Lord, we are reminded again of how much value you place upon your church, that it is the demonstration, the pinnacle of your grace, that in your church is revealed the depth of your wisdom to bring together a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, Jew, Gentile, as one man in Christ. And we marvel at what you have done and what you are doing. And even in our own lives, Lord, what you have done to bring us to this point that we should be part of such a sacred society known as the Church of the Living God. Please bless us now, Lord, as we study your word and as we look at the importance of ecclesiology. Continue to bless our time now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, uh, for those of you uh, that maybe were not a part of last week's um, Sunday school, we looked at the issue of pastoral ministry. That's kind of where we left off, talking about practical ecclesiology, and we talked a little bit about God's view of the church, what is the church, having a low view of the church, having a high view of the church, which basically just means having a biblical view of the church. And I just realized, I think I liked when the lights were off last week, <laughs> or the, the, a couple weeks ago we had a light problem, but these are really bright, but that's okay, that's all right, it's, uh, we're, we're called to be in the light, right? So, uh, <laughs> but they are pretty bright. Uh, but uh, this week, so I want to continue that very train of thought in terms of pastoral ministry. Got a little PowerPoint here just talking about what we looked at last week, and last week we talked about uh, the, the, the role of leaders, pastors, elders in the church and the church's uh, duty to submit to their leaders. And um, one of the things I talked about earlier on is that all of the Christian life is oriented in this ecclesiastical fashion. Uh, and how many of us have heard statements and we have heard comments throughout our lives where people don't have a high view of the local church? Um, matter of fact, uh, just met a guy who told me that he doesn't believe in organized religion and does not want to identify with the people in a building somewhere, the way he put it. You see what I'm saying? So these kinds of views persist. Uh, this is not just theoretical. I mean, it's what you're going to encounter here and there. Um, ironically, I mean, we just got done talking about having a high view of the local church and these kinds of things. And then, I don't know if you saw recently, but the Francis Chan video dropped, and uh, everybody's talking about it. I talked about it and whatnot. And if you didn't see that, Francis Chan in a recent video was talking about uh, the fact that he just discovered, apparently, 
that for 1,500 years there was just one church before the Reformation and that everybody was gathered around the body and blood of Jesus. There, weren't, there wasn't, apparently, according to him, there was no pastors who just kind of one guy who engaged in, you know, uh, being in the front of the church and teaching and monologue. And, and he seemed to have a, a real problem with guys who go into an office for 30 hours and study uh, and then come and preach a conflicting message to another pastor. And he said, basically, like, what happened? We used to just have one kind of organism where there was no separation between, you know, anybody in the church. And I, I just got done t- telling you guys about that a low ecclesiology, an unbiblical ecclesiology, something like the emergent church, right, where we take away monologue, we take away the pulpit. Uh, matter of fact, that's one of his problems, apparently, is that, uh, well, we just, did, we just invented this idea of the, pope, the pulpit 500 years ago, he said. Uh, just uh, unbelievable, breathtaking. And, of course, that's all false. Um, you know, Augustine, I mean, back in the 4th century, you know, he did uh, church pretty much the way we're doing it now. The only difference is, uh, prepare yourself for this, the only difference in Augustine's time is that he sat, the people stood during the preaching. Wow. Be thankful I don't do that to you guys. Because <laughs> if I did, you'd have to submit to your leaders. <laughs> Talk about getting antsy during a sermon, right? Uh, but uh, anyway, so so relevant what we're talking about, you know, the fact that God has appointed the leaders, the fact that they are servants of the mysteries of God. We looked at that, teachers and preachers, kind of the, the essence of their task, and also the word shepherd as that which captures the heart and soul of pastoral ministry. The word shepherd, they're really a, a word picture to illustrate what a shepherd should be doing as he sort of oversees and takes care and tends to the flock. Uh, of God as a shepherd. What a great word for the role of a pastor. And then we, we talked a little bit about what the office of an elder is based on the titles that are given to an elder in the Bible. So it's elder, overseer, and then pastor, which literally means shepherd. Uh, and so we talked about that a little bit. And also, we looked at some of the common objections that we have to biblical eldership based on comments that people tend to make, like, why do we really need elders? Why can't women be elders? Uh, There are people that I respect in my life. They function as my elder. Uh, As long as I follow Jesus, I don't need a pastor. Jesus is my pastor, basically. Uh, Why do elders need to have all the authority in the church? You know, these kinds of statements that reveal that that person doesn't really have a solid biblical uh, ecclesiology. Uh, I actually had this argument made to me at one point. I had somebody in uh, 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 a Christian brother that actually was trying to argue that pastors are not absolutely necessary for a church, and this was his argument. His argument was that in Acts chapter 14, Paul says he appointed elders in every church. So what he's saying is that you had a church before you had an elder, demonstrating that you had a church without an elder. (laughs) What's the problem with that? Anybody want to help me out? What's the problem with that theology or that approach? Anybody see a problem with that? Uh, Anyone? Yes, ma'am? What's that? Of course, right? Paul sees that uh, something is missing, and so he sees the need to fulfill what's missing by supplying a pastor. Anybody else have an answer to that? Yes, sir. Oh, that's good. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good because that's getting to your hermeneutics, right? Like, how do you look at the book of Acts? Book of Acts is very important how we look at it, you know. Are we going to have a strict uh, prescriptive view of the book of Acts, meaning everything that you see in Acts is prescribed for us to do, right? Or is some of the book of Acts descriptive, meaning that it's meant to describe what happened, but not necessarily prescribe what happened. So, yes, Morgan. Oh. Very good, yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it, that's right, it's like anytime you have a theology that you, come, you came to the conclusion of some kind of theology that puts one scripture against another scripture, you know you're in trouble because, of course, tota scriptura, the sufficiency of scripture, but then also the fact that scripture is inspired of God, uh, it doesn't contradict itself, you know. Scripture cannot be broken, Jesus said, you know. You, you can't have a conflicting uh, uh, theology in Scripture. There's only one ecclesiology that the Bible teaches, not two. You see what I'm saying? Uh, any, 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 any other ideas? This is important because, yes, sir? <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, ab- that's absolutely right. You cannot follow Hebrews and the command, the imperative to obey your leaders, right, in, in that setting. The other thing uh, that we're missing here is that prior to the Apostle Paul installing elders, plural, notice, plural, in every city, as it says there in Acts chapter 13 or 14, um, Paul was the pastor. You forget that. Paul was the pastor of these churches, right? Of course, he's the one who founded and taught in these churches. So he was, in a sense, functioning as their interim pastor, as it were, whether he was present or absent by letter or by some emissary of his, Paul was first and foremost their pastor. And, uh, and so anyway, just uh, I want to just kind of get you thinking about things like that, because these are types of things you're going to encounter, statements that are going to be made to you someday, and how are you going to combat these kinds of low views of ecclesiology. So uh, the other thing is this, is the, this is where we left off, and this is where I want to pick up again. So in terms of, remember, practical pastoral ministry, and these are just some observations when we're thinking about what is a biblical view of eldership, <coughs> and these uh, very basic principles here that I think sometimes are missed on people in the church would be this. Number one, that pastors should play a role in your life. And so I'm always weary of those church members that are always kind of slipping out. They don't ever want to make contact with pastors. They always kind of want to just dwell in the shadows. And you know what I mean? You you might have a two-second encounter with them, and then they're gone. Right, But you never get to actually see where they're at, where their heart is at, where their life is at, where their walk is at. That's not good. I think that we should have that, that, that role. And when I say that a pastor should play a role in your life, uh, I mean even more than that. I think the biblical vision would be that a pastor is involved in your life uh, for a lot of things. Uh, major life decisions that you're making, I think, should be done in conjunction with pastoral wisdom, pastoral counsel. That's what a pastor should be there to do, is to provide you biblical counsel, wisdom, uh, major decisions. So here, I'm not talking about what kind of coffee you're going to order at Starbucks. I'm talking about like major life decisions. You're thinking about moving. You're thinking about going into a ministry venture. You're thinking about, you know, uh, maybe uh, getting married, okay? You're thinking about... Um, you know, things like that, right? You're, uh, those kind of major decisions. Uh, I think your pastor should be aware. It's not like, oh, hey, by the way, we're moving out of state, see you. 
<laughs> you know, it's like, I think a pastor should be involved uh, to that level, not in a micromanaging way whatsoever, but just in a, in, in a manner that says, look, um, you know, I don't have a superficial relationship with my pastors. I have a genuine relationship with my pastors. They actually know who I am. They know what's going on in my life, you know. Um, Felix walked in today. I looked at him. I knew exactly where he'd come from. He just got back from Mexico. I know what's going on in his life, kind of. You want to come up here, brother? <laughs> but I know, you know, I knew that much, you know what I mean, that he's been away. I know what he's doing. I know what he's up to, you know, and so um, I think pastors should be involved in knowing what's going on with marriage and family. I don't think the past, it's, it's sad that too often pastoral ministry comes in at a red alert stage and not prior to that, right, when things are developing to go in a bad way, maybe with your marriage or with your kids or something like that, and pastors have no idea, suddenly we get a phone call, we get a text message or an email, and we're all on red alert. But really, what should have happened there is that we should have been part of, you know, helping you and ministering to you. I mean, that's, if we're not there for that, what are we here for, right? So I would say things like that, uh, accountability, uh, guidance on all kinds of issues and things like that. I have a whole list of things that I can, that I can get into, but any, anybody want to speak to that at all? Any, any, anybody, any fears that Pastor Milo is going to be like following you home tonight or something, <laughs> you know? Uh, any, any abuses in that area that you can think of? Any dangers? Yes, Robert? just depends what you're talking about. Uh, if there's a problem there, like for example, if someone is claiming abuse or, or claiming a violation of their conscience or something unbiblical, certainly a pastor should be involved in that through counsel and things like that, uh, but not to the point where you're trying to create some sort of, uh, you know, extra biblical guidelines that you're forcing upon your people. I've actually heard of kind of things like that. So uh, it would just depend, Robert, probably more specific, you know, something like that. Good. Thank you. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you know, it just begs the question, you know, to what degree is a pastor, sh you know, going to be involved in your, in your life? And, yeah, and, de and determine things for you in your conscience. No, understand that the Bible says you are Christ's free man. Uh, any pastor that's trying to decide for you how you're supposed to dress, what movies you're allowed to watch, what music you're allowed to listen to, what food you're allowed to eat, or where you're allowed to go... Uh, be very careful there, you know what I mean? But that does not mean, of course, that pastors don't have anything to say about those issues, of course. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about biblical modesty, for example. So elders can't talk to you about biblical modesty? Well, most elders don't want to talk to you about biblical modesty. They're terrified of talking about that. Uh, but again, it's not, you know, that they're issuing dress codes, you know what I mean? But they're certainly involved. They're certainly, and some people, you know, it's interesting because some people are just ignorant on these issues. Uh, I have had the opportunity uh, and I've had the occasion, uh, several occasions where I've had to share with a young lady or a woman that she is in fact immodest and no one had ever just told it to her like that, you know what I mean, but somebody needed to and you know, of course, 
the mean old pastor has to do it, you know what I mean? But uh, yeah, so it's just, uh, there's a lot there, you know what I mean? And um, I just think like involvement is best. I love when people come up to me and let me know what's going on in their lives and say, hey, pastor, just want to let you know, uh, this is, I, I'm dealing with something at work. Here's what's going on. You know, I'm being persecuted or there's extra pressure on me or something's going on at work and can you just pray for me? That's it. You know what I mean? That's, that's, that's all we need to know. You know, we, we, we just want to be involved. Yeah. You might kill him. <laughs> so, <laughs> yes. <laughs> no, I, listen, um, uh, that's actually one of my points here is that pastors should be accessible. Uh, but hopefully through the process of maturity, what the pastor is trying to do is the pastor is trying to build up your own immunity so you can deal with things biblically yourself so that you, you know, the pastor doesn't have to resolve every marital conflict that you have. Eventually, hopefully, you have built up enough wisdom and theology, you know, it's like physician, heal yourself, you know, like you have the means to do it, you know. Yes, sir. Yeah, you can develop almost like an unhealthy codependency on a pastor's counsel, right? Where every little step of the way, he has to hold your hand or you don't know how to live the Christian life. We're trying to hopefully get away from some of that, you know what I mean? But, uh, uh, yes, sir. There's only certain things an elder can do. So elders, there's, certain so, there's only uh, so much they can delegate. There's certain things that are not to be delegated to other people. You know what I'm saying? And so uh, that might be a very good church growth method of doing things, right? To grow your church, right? To install leaders beneath you that really are doing things really the elders should be doing, you know, but they don't want to. Or they've, they've last, they've, they've, you can lose the ability to do it pragmatically because the church is so big now. You can't, you can't be uh, there, and there's just not enough pastors to do that. You know, so it could be the, it could could come that the best counsel for that church would be to uh, plant another church. You know what I mean? Something like that. Did you guys have a question up here? I'm sorry. Yes, yes, ma'am. Oh, I don't think it's ever out of bounds. I mean, the Bible tells us to admonish one another, teach one another, rebuke one another, correct one another, you know, on and on, encourage one another. And so I think I, I invite that. That's the way it should begin. And if the, the issue persists, right, then that's when maybe we need to get, you know, some more counsel involved, right, things like that. So uh, 
that, 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 that I know that's a big issue, you know, and, uh, and, and things, but the way that I've always uh, uh, counseled on that issue is if you are pursuing modesty, you will never fall into the category of being immodest, right? And, but if your philosophy of modesty is, well, how close can I get to the edge before I qualify as immodest, you're probably going to be crossing the line time and again, right? But if we do what the Bible tells us to do, right, if you pursue those kinds of things, pursue what's excellent, you know what I'm saying, you don't ever have to worry about that ever again, you know what I'm saying? And so, I mean, I know Reformed churches that, you know, women are not allowed to wear pants in the church. I just, you know, I just think that's ludicrous, you know what I mean? I, I'm not handing out a dress code like that, you know what I'm saying? I think uh, the better way is to leave it to the conscience of the people, except when it absolutely violates and where it becomes so obvious, right? And uh, I think the Spirit will lead the church to know. Yeah, at least that's been my experience. Anybody else? Well, this is not a teaching on modesty, but if y'all want to go down there, okay. Pastors should be available uh, for the spiritual maturity of the church. And honestly, uh, you can almost put the word there, mainly available for the spiritual maturity of the church, because that's what pastoral ministry is all about. I'm not, you know, we're not so much concerned about your finances. We're not so much concerned about your kind of house or car, car that you drive or that kind of thing. You know, okay, understand there could be some danger in all of that materialism and things like that. I understand that. But what I'm saying is that more than anything, the pastor is involved for your spiritual uh, maturity. And then here's another one. Also, pastors should be cultivating the gifts in the body. I think that's important to identify what are the gifts in the body that reside in the body? Uh, how has the Lord gifted you and how can we best facilitate that? I think one of the hardest things for pastors is to identify the right people and put them in the right places. In other words, the hardest thing of ministry is getting the right people in the right places doing the right things. You know, whenever that is off, whenever you have the wrong person doing the wrong thing, <laughs> you know, uh, it's kind of, uh, and that's what's wrong with so many big churches, mega churches, a lot of times they tend to fall into the, that category. It's kind of like James White said, why is it that John MacArthur is the only big church that can do it right? <laughs> I understand that because it's tough, you know what I mean? But, um, but I think it can be done even for them, because I don't want to throw all big churches under the bus, of course, but boy, you'd better be as intentional as John MacArthur. And I know some of the inner workings of MacArthur's church. Um, everybody is assigned an elder in the church, for example. There's a huge uh, groups of uh, uh, home fellowships and Sunday school rooms, and everybody has an elder that oversees you know, certain population of the church so that no one in that church is without some kind of pastoral accountability, which I like that. You know what I mean? Even in the seminary, all the students in the seminary have accountability, accountability to one of the pastors at Grace Community where they meet with them regularly uh, to see how they're doing spiritually. I think, you know, it's a lot of work, but if that's where God has you, then great. But <clears throat> in terms of all of this, it also assumes a certain level of involvement and servanthood. In other words, we can't develop your spiritual gifts in the church if you're not involved, if you're not willing to serve, because everybody should. And just ideas for using your gifts in the church. I just jotted down several things that I think are kind of objective things, that kind of big things that maybe we, we, we overlook. 
things like prayer. And when I say prayer, it's kind of like, well, yeah, prayer, that's kind of a big, easy, general one. But very specifically, uh, you can develop, I think, prayer groups in the church. I think you develop people that pray very specifically for specific things. Like, there should be a prayer meeting for Pastor Emilio when he goes to UNT uh, for his safety. <laughs> you know, they, I welcome that, you know, like maybe a little Facebook hangout group or something, you know. Let's pray for him. You guys ever seen me on the box and I'm like looking behind my back, right? Like, <laughs> I'm looking behind my back. Like, I don't know who's back there. You know, I need your back. I need you to get my back, you know, in prayer. Uh, hospitality is certainly another major issue, a, a spiritual gift hospitality that we can have toward the brethren, which that is a tough one. If you want to do it right, if you want to do it consistently, and if you want to do meaningful hospitality, that is not an easy one. And we are called to be hospitable, uh, to bring people into our homes, to open our homes for the church and for people. And I say, you know, if you're going to engage in hospitality ministry, uh, some of you are very methodical about this. Some of you have a plan. Some of you have a schedule, and praise God for that. Some of you guys are more spontaneous, and that's great. But I would just say, hospitality-wise, uh, let's not be like so many other uh, uh, um, churches that sometimes fall into this trap where when you get together and you do hospitality, you know, 90% of the conversation is about the football game or the weather or your job or something like that. Have a plan. Uh, you know what I'm saying? I, I would say here, especially the men of the house should have the leadership and should have a plan where they know like, okay, we're going to guide this conversation tonight in a Christ-centered and a God-centered uh, direction so that our fellowship is spiritual, not just superficial. We can talk about the game. That's fine. But what I'm saying is that bring them into your home and minister to them. You know, uh, share the grace of God, uh, of what God's grace is, work, how it's working in your life and vice versa. You know, it should be a mutual edification thing. Evangelism is another a thing that you can obviously pursue as far as gifting goes, and different kinds of evangelism. It doesn't have to be just one kind of evangelism. It could be other kinds of evangelism. I remember years back, I went to my pastor. I was, this was 1999, and I went to my pastor, and I said, hey, I want to know everything that you know. I want to do what you do. <laughs> what do we do? He said, great, show up here Saturday morning. I'm going door-to-door. -door in the whole, I'm mapping the whole neighborhood, and I'm doing door-to-door -door ministry. You want to you you come learn from me? Let's go. And I said, okay, great. And so we covered. We, we must have did a 1,000 houses in the, in the neighborhood, you know, and, uh, and that was great. And I, I certainly welcome that kind of evangelism alongside of everything else. Uh, also, visitation ministry. I mean, right now, after church today, you know, we're going to go pray for our sister Crystal, you know, who's in the hospital, a lot of pain, looking at another surgery possibly. I mean, we should all be aware of those kinds of things, pray for people that are going through stuff like that, and, and be engaged in visiting the sick and the bedridden, and people who just simply are, uh, you know, uh, are un unable to attend or fellowship. Uh, and then discipleship, this is something that we should all be cognizant of. We should all be thinking in this way, men mentor, I wrote down, men mentoring women, women mentoring women, and then intentional fellowship among us all. I mean, that's something that we, we can all obviously pursue. And then servanthood, because the Bible says, uh, I don't know where the verse is, it's just a verse I thought about, but um, uh, Paul, I think, is telling, I mean, is it Timothy or Titus? You know, he tells him, you know, teach your people to meet pressing needs or urgent needs, you know, we should be the type of church, uh, a Christian in a church, member in a church, should entail being willing to rise up and meet pressing needs when they arise, whatever they may be. 
you know, and, uh, and so that's, uh, that's really important. Uh, another one here, pastors should cultivate the gifts of the body, and then uh, under that I wrote down pastors should seek to duplicate themselves because this is such a big thing. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, which is the seminal passage on all of this. Paul says, the things which you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others, others also. So there you see kind of the pecking order. There you see like the duplication process. And the Apostle Paul was in the business of duplicating himself. And so with that, um, there's, two, uh, there's two things here that we want to be careful and we want to avoid. I actually have a here we go, yeah. And so what I put down is like training future pastors and leaders, there's two things to avoid. Avoid pragmatism and avoid pessimism. So in other words, uh, pragmatism, I would say the majority of people fall into that category, which is, you know, hurry up and raise them up and send them out kind of mentality. You know, I've been part of a church like that where everything was like, raise them up and send them out quickly as possible. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's only one problem, I believe is that true pastoral quality, pastoral ministry, is nothing that is done quickly, right? It's nothing quick about it. I mean, the reason why you go to seminary and get an MDiv, it will take you years and years to do that. There's a reason for that. There's a lot to learn. There's a lot to study. Uh, you, know, I, you know, honestly, I didn't go to seminary, but I always counsel seminary for men that want to be pastors because my philosophy is this is that seminary is a great place where you can go work out your theology work out what you believe <laughs> don't do that on the fly when you're already in a church somewhere and make a shipwreck of things go to seminary and figure out all of that stuff you know what i'm saying uh not that seminary is a sure proof way of doing it it certainly is not matter of fact a lot of seminary-trained men go into churches and utterly destroy them because they're not ready. Because just because you have a degree or just because you know Greek and Hebrew, just because you've studied hermeneutics, that doesn't mean you know how to shepherd people, you know how to lead people, you know how to counsel, you know how to, you know, uh, to have the right manner uh, with a person. I mean, a pastor that is very easily, easily irritable with people, impatient with people, uh, harsh with people, uh, things like that, uh, <laughs> you know, you're going to have a hard time, you know, because uh, much of the ministry is about that. Uh, you know, you know how it is, guys. I mean, people, especially the men in here that like to preach and teach and things like that, you know, you look at the pastoral ministry and you think that it's the glory of preaching and, you know, all of that, you know what I mean? But then you get into the nuts and bolts of pastoral ministry and you realize it's actually very little of that. It's very, it's actually a lot more of just the muck and the mire of sin and counseling and hardship and problems and confrontation. You know, my wife hates confrontation, you know, and she tells me all the time, I don't know how you do what you do, because <laughs> I would hate it, you know, and I'm like, I understand. I hate it as much as you do, but it's part of my job, and uh, I mean that in a in a godly sense, okay? It's, it's part of my task, my duty as a pastor to, to confront and to, and to deal with things like that. So, uh, you know, none of that is quick and easy, so we have to avoid the issue of pragmatism. I knew a brother, went to a big church, and the only thing required, kid you not, the only thing required to be a pastor was that you had read Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology and you were qualified. I'm not kidding you. 
And they, as long as you go through that, you finish, you know, you go through a questionnaire, you meet with an elder, you're, you're qualified. I'm thinking, what? So it's like, okay, wow. Any questions about that? I feel like I'm rambling. I don't want to be like Dr. Phil up here or something, you know. <laughs> I want to, yeah. Uh, yes, sir. The cultivating of the gifts, is that yeah. something that, um, that the elder pastors are doing here at Heritage Grace specifically, like surveying and evaluating what gifts are within the body? Or are you looking for people to kind of express their gifts to you and, and hope that at some point yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's a really good question. I would say yes and no. Uh, yes, uh, I can think in my mind of many people who are cultivating and we're helping them cultivate their gifts on different things, right? Uh, whether it's preaching or teaching or evangelizing or music or whatever. But no, uh, we haven't done a good job of organizing that. Uh, I think we could do a much better job of organizing all of that. So, we, you know, it's kind of like we don't want to necessarily pool everyone's gifts and, you know, like you give out questionnaires. I mean, maybe we need to, but what I'm saying is that we haven't done that, you know what I mean? But we, we certainly invite that. If you feel, see, to me, it's like this. If, if, you really, uh, if you're really involved in a church, you're serving in a local church, and you have a God-given gift and a God-given burden for that gift, you'll make it known. You almost ha- kind of have to, you know what I mean? Because uh, if you're gifted, you're going to want to use your gift somehow. And so, uh, uh, I think that uh, some of it's natural, but some of it has to be organized and not just assume. And so I think, Russell, uh, we can do a better job of that, and I hope that we will, you know. Uh, anybody else? Anybody else? Anything else? Um, okay, so avoiding pragmatism. The other thing is avoiding pessimism. And even though here, because I went off of First uh, Second uh, Timothy 2.2, uh, obviously there the Apostle Paul is thinking pastors, and so that's kind of where I'm at right now. The other thing there is avoiding pessimism, which means that no one else is good enough to be a pastor in the church, right? It's, it's, just, it's just me and Lynn, and none of the rest of you are good enough. No, that's, that would be very unhealthy for any church to have that attitude, but I tell you what, I have seen where churches can become so excessive in this, and, and it's always in the name of what is good for the church. It's always in the name of being careful, right, and just go, seeking to guard the fellowship. So there's a balance there, you know. There is, yeah, there is that. There's, we got to be careful who we allow to, especially to preach and to teach. I mean, that, that, that is it. Uh, but we also don't want to go so far to the other side that, again, no one is good enough uh, to, to fit the bill, so to speak. And so we want to be very careful uh, about that. So, okay. Uh, also, uh, things that your pastors would want you to know. You know this is practical ecclesiology, right? <laughs> because look at what, <laughs> look at what my, point, my points are here. Things that pastors want you to know. Why, why did I include this? Because it doesn't get talked about very much. Uh, things that pastors want you to know. Number one, we are not perfect. Um, Look at your Bibles with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, th- this is not just spoken sentimentally or, you know, that's an easy way of saying that we're human or something like that. No, no, there's actually a pretty deep theology involved in that, uh, and that's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, beginning in verse 4, uh, the Apostle Paul says this, such confidence we have through Christ, toward God. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, 
who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, and the Spirit gives life. So there, the Apostle Paul uh, is very explicit that the new covenant minister is not adequate in and of himself. Uh, So in other words, with the ministry comes a very deep sense of inadequacy. And you've got to know that because... Um, I just covered my, I just covered my notes and there we go. Yeah, it just, you know, there comes a deep inadequacy and uh, I think sometimes if you're like me, you know, you you may sometimes develop a view of your elders that is uh, uh, unrealistic, that's super spiritual, uh, where you think your pastors are sort of above the things that you experience. Well, we're not. Uh, and um, uh, that's why I said, you know, we need encouragement as well, but understand that uh, because we are inadequate in it of ourselves, um, God in His sovereignty has ordained that He puts imperfect shepherds to shepherd imperfect people in an imperfect church (laughs) and in an imperfect world. I mean, that's the way that it works, and so be it as it may, be prepared for your pastor to make mistakes, Be prepared for your pastor at times to step on people's toes, to not have the best tone, to not be as patient as he could have been, as understanding as he could have been. And so I say that for you only that I had a young brother come to me years ago, and um, uh, he came to me, and there was something so heavy on his heart. He pulls me aside outside of the church and says, I just need somebody to tell this to. I don't know who to tell pulled over, and uh, what, what he was dealing with as he started sharing with me through tears, devastated. I'm just like, what's wrong? And he's telling me that the pastor brushed him off. And that devastated him because he built up this huge expectation of talking to this pastor and having like this <laughs> meaningful conversation, and he was brushed off by the pastor as he felt and it crushed his heart. And there he was like confessing to me that he's hurt now, he's bitter, he doesn't know how to handle it. And I was like, brother, <laughs> you need to understand <laughs> that this pastor, man, is not perfect. You know what I mean? He's not God. He is not Jesus, <laughs> you know? And maybe you just need a little bit of a realistic view of who he is, you know what I'm saying? And so just understand that, but you know, we're not perfect, guys. We're not always going to approach everything with perfect grace. You know what I'm saying? Any, any questions about that? Because uh, I'm sure that's happened to me. Uh, I've had people pull me aside and said, hey, you, you said something to me. It kind of offended me. Um, you said it in this way. It sounded like this. Is that what you meant? No, of course not. You know, I didn't mean it like that. I would have never said something like that to you. You know, that's just something we're going to deal with. Yes, sir. Thank you, Robert. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Very good. And uh, I think if we take this serious, I think it kind of levels the playing field, right? Understanding who your pastor is. I even wrote down one of the things I put down here, you know, in terms of the pastor needing encouragement. I said, uh, we have the same faith as yours, the same nature. We too struggle to mortify sin and the members of our flesh in the world uh, with the same enemies, the, the world, the flesh and the devil. And so uh, understand that when you go to your pastor, you're speaking to someone who is of a similar nature as you are, you know what I mean? And, and that's, a, that's an indictment on the pastors as, as well, that when people come to you, it should not be a, you know, I'm looking down your nose kind of thing. It should be, uh, uh, what's the word that uh, Paul uses, parakaleo? It should be a coming alongside of you and embracing you, not a coming on top of you, right? It should be a, 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 a I'm next to you kind of thing, right? And that's sometimes it's hard for people to go there in their minds because, yeah, they have this, you know, pastor authority, you know what I mean? And so you're kind of put off by that. But it should be, uh, you should be able to come to your pastor. And you raised a particular issue, though, Robert. You, you, you mentioned that you went to a pastor to confide in him regarding sin. And that's a whole other matter. I mean, that, that, that falls to the issue of the pastor's trustworthiness and whether or not you can come to your elder and confide in him. You should. You should be able to come to your elder and confide in him completely and not fear any, not have any sort of fear of reproach, not any fear whatsoever of betraying your confidence. And so um, that would be a, that would be a major, major failure for a pastor uh, to be entrusted with private information that he divulges, you know, in some sort of irresponsible, reckless way. That would be a major uh, problem, you know, absolutely. So any, any other questions about that? Yeah, I mean, pastors have an impossible job, you know, Nobody likes them, no one hangs out with them, you know, nobody, <laughs> you know, you, everybody fears them, you know, things like that, you know. Uh, but no, you shouldn't have that, that view. On the next one, because I want to end it here soon, uh, pastors also need encouragement, absolutely 100%. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 5 through 7, there the Apostle Paul expresses his weakness as a minister of God, and he shares his weaknesses with the church of Corinth. He actually tells them, look, I've been depressed. You know, how many, par- how many pastors are honest enough to tell their people that they undergo depression? Uh, that's getting pretty, pretty vulnerable, you know what I mean? And so I think an elder, if he's honest, I know I've been, I know I've had sleepless nights, I know that I've been uh, tempted to throw in the towel. I mean, I tell you, and I've told you this before, I don't know how many times I've descended the stairs after preaching, telling myself, I will never preach again. <laughs> that sermon was so terrible, I will never <laughs> get up there again ever in my life. Like, I, that's it. I'm telling Trish, it's over. <laughs> uh, and, 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 and understand that obviously there's a level of there's a psychology that a pastor undergoes, but there's spiritual warfare in the mix of all of that, you know. And so we need your encouragement as much as you need encouragement, trust me. And uh, uh, one of the hardest things for me, one of the most challenges, challenging things for me is that in developing sermon prep, there is a very weird dynamic that happens because half of your brain, you're so approaching the text professionally because I'm trying to do my Greek and Hebrew exegesis right, and I'm trying to get it right, and so what I'm saying is I'm coming to the text very intellectually, academically, rigorous, you know, like that, and then there's the other part of that where it's like, uh, my exegesis has to impact me. 
So I have to have some exchange here with the text, you know what I mean? Like on a spiritual level, is this for me? You know, am I being encouraged by this or am I so incredibly nervous about getting it right that I'm not even considering how the word is to get into me as a, as, as a Christian? You see what I'm saying? And uh, there's been times where I have gone almost the entire week thinking of a sermon, never once really engaging it with my soul. Uh, you guys know what I'm saying? It's like all intellect, but there's no heart. Uh, there's, that's a very fine line. There's a you got to be careful there sometimes as a pastor that you can fall into that where it's like you got to do both. you got to do both. And then last of all, understanding uh, things your pastor wants you to know. Uh, we want you to know that uh, everything that we do, we do for your joy. And, of course, you see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, beginning in verse 23. I'll read it for us. Uh, the Apostle Paul says, I call God as witness to my soul. Uh, when he says that, course, he's saying that he's being honest, that to spare you, I did not come again to Corinth. In other words, why, what he's talking about there, what he's talking about church discipline, and what he's saying is to, by, to spare you, he didn't want to come with a rod of discipline. He says, not that we lord it over your faith. So quick counteracting that statement, kind of like quick balancing act here, right? He just talked about the threat of, you know, that sounds like a threat, right? To spare you. I didn't come to you, right? Like, wow, <laughs> to spare you. But then he wants to qualify that and say, not that we lord it over your faith. And, and notice he doesn't say what that is, not that we lord it over you. Well, what is the it? There's no antecedent. There's no clear referent there. And so it means the whole dynamic of his authority. He doesn't lord his authority authority over their faith, but we are workers with you for your joy. And uh, I remember being at Westminster Seminary uh, many, many years ago, Westminster Escondido, and John Piper, I had a friend who was graduating from Westminster, and John Piper was delivering the uh, graduation address to the students graduating at Westminster, and this was John Piper's text, and he exhorted these future ministers and scholars, and he said, don't ever forget that all that you are is a fellow worker with the body, and you're working with them for joy, to produce joy in their life. It's like, you don't want to come to church to get bummed out, right? I mean, <laughs> we have enough problems. I mean, church should not add more problems to your problems. We should be here to minister and to produce joy uh, in the body. And so if there's anything we want you to know is understand that everything that we do, we are absolutely striving for your joy. Very quickly here, uh, I just threw in the deacons at the, at the end because <laughs> I said, what about deacons, pastors and deacons? What about those guys? Uh, what do they do, right? Because we're talking about pastoral ministry, but I felt the need to mention deacons because uh, they are, in Philippians chapter 1, they are named alongside of the elders. And so let me just say with regard to deacons, uh, three things. Number one, they have high standards, uh, very similar standards to pastoral qualification. First Timothy chapter 3 verse 8 and following, the deacons are to meet the type of qualifications that elders are to meet. And so in other words, deacons are to be held at a very high standard. Also, they are to have a very, I, I put down a very high service because many uh, churches reduce the deacons to the level of an usher or a parking lot attendant or something like that. 
That is not what a deacon is supposed to be biblically. You know, bib, uh, biblical deacon, a diaconate, is that they serve alongside of the elders for one ultimate purpose, one ultimate reason, one ultimate function, and that is to prop up the Word. That's the whole life of a deacon, is fill the needs, alleviate the burdens for one reason, so that the Word of God can move freely in the church. And so, that's why we'll do the tables. That's why we'll serve here and fulfill this need and do that. And, uh, and that's what the deacons are supposed to do. Uh, uh, lastly, deacons also have a high standing. You see my alliteration there, right? High standards, high service, high standing. Uh, you guys know how I like to alliterate things. But uh, you see that in Acts chapter 6, when the primitive deacons are selected in the book of Acts, uh, they have a high standing. Why? Because they were members of the community that the community was able to objectively identify as these are spiritual men. We see that. We identify that in them. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, the Apostle Paul explicitly says that deacons have a high standing in the faith. Uh, it's very serious. I wish I could develop more, that, more of that, but uh, we are sorely out of time. Next week, Lord willing... Uh, we're going to be looking at preaching and the ministry of the Word and, uh, and talking about ecclesiology. Any last questions? Questions about deacons? Any deacons have a question about deacons? <laughs> yes, sir. Oh, please ask. Oh, yes. Let's close in prayer. You had to ask the one question, right? The Greek word for... Um, uh, that Paul uses there in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, is the word uh, gune, and the word gune can be translated woman or wife. Uh, and the reason why I don't think a deacon should uh, be a woman is because one of the qualifications of a deacon is also that he be married to a woman. So uh, I, I don't see that, and I'm also not convinced that anywhere in the New Testament, uh, a woman is identified as a deacon. The only possible refer reference to a woman deacon in the Bible is in Romans chapter 16, verse 1, that mentions Phoebe the diakonos. But the word diakonos means servant, uh, not necessarily deacon. Paul is also called a diakonos. Epaphras is called a diakonos, but they were not deacons. Uh, and so... Uh, there's a whole theology to it. Best book you can, you can read on the subject is uh, William Mounce's book uh, on the pastoral epistles for the word biblical commentary because I went high and low here looking on this issue because two of my heroes uh, that, are not, that are not without criticism, just because they're my heroes, that doesn't mean I can't criticize them, okay? But two of my heroes, MacArthur and Piper, both believe in women deacons. And so, you know, don't y'all jump me at once, okay? But, uh, but I, I don't agree based on the commentary uh, there. Oh, you don't know what's going to pop up at Apple TV, so I'll keep that open. You know what I mean? Like, who knows? I mean, some poor... Okay, let's, let's, uh, let's kill the feed, brother, because who knows what Tim Cook's got for us there in that commercial. 